Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Matt Holbrook from the University of Birmingham about his new book, Prince of Tricksters, The Incredible True Story of Natalie Lucas, Gentleman Crook. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking with Matt Holbrook, who is a professor of cultural history at the University of Birmingham, about his fascinating new book, The Prince of Tricksters, The Incredible True Story of Natalie Lucas, Gentleman Crook. Um, which was published this year um, by University of Chicago Press, and it, it's it, it's an incredible work, really. It's it's a, a theoretical uh, book. It's a fascinating tale about a really interesting character, um, and also it's quite uh, quite a personal book as well. So I'm I'm delighted to have uh, to have Matt on the pod. Thanks, Dave. It's good to be here. Good to be talking to you. So. I think we might start by um, introducing the book a little in context. So um, one of the things about the book is that it took you a long time um, to write, and it's part of a much broader sort of research agenda that you've got on the 20s and 30s. So I wonder if you could kind of um, situate the book uh, within this kind of broader research agenda. Yeah, of course. I I mean, I got into the book. I didn't mean to write a book about... about one man, and I certainly didn't mean to write a book about a, a confidence trickster. I just became interested about 10 years ago in trying to make sense of British culture in the decades after the Great War, and to try and work out, the, I suppose, the unlikely ways in which, which cultural life was disrupted or reshaped or rethought in the aftermath. And I spent a long time casting around for ways into thinking about this. I knew I didn't want to write a conventional book about the memory of the Great War. And then I slowly began to hone in on, I suppose, these these figures who, these quintessential figures of the 1920s who moved between different lives and different identities. And it started to, it started to strike me that these were, these were the kind of figures that you could use to say something about about a culture that was increasingly dislocated, disrupted, that contained all kinds of new possibilities for, for, for remaking and self-making. And eventually that, that turned into a book, the book that became Prince of Tricksters. I, I started off looking at a range of different characters of, of vamps, confidence tricksters, shysters. And then this one character, the character I ended up writing about, just came to focus a lot more clearly. And so I began to pursue them in a more serious, more systematic way. This might sound like a strange question, but how do you actually do research about a confidence trickster? Um, over the course of the book, um, our character, who we might call Natalie Lucas, but also he has several names. Um, you know, he gets involved in a whole range of different activities. Um, and in some ways, these names kind of reflect, as you say, you know, a different kind of of self that he makes. Um, this is at the same time against the background of 
journalism, publishing official records in, in, in things like courts, you know, and, and the kind of the records that the state keeps. So how do you actually kind of write the history of, of almost someone who, uh, who doesn't want to be represented? I'm still not sure I can answer that question in <laughs> 10 years on. Um, it's difficult because, because Lucas moves through so many different names. The man 40 different names I've seen him, I think I've seen him in, in the period between between his birth in 1903 and his death in 1940. And the fact that he changes names so constantly frustrates all the normal research tools that we use as a historian. It's no longer straightforward to tap a name into an online database of newspapers or of shipping records because you're never quite sure who you're looking for. So there's a lot of trial and error, a lot of trying out different names, and there's just a hell of a lot of luck stumbling across stumbling across the copy of one of his criminal confessions on eBay that then has a later newspaper report pasted inside the front cover that, that some reader has collected together. And I suppose the other interesting challenge is you just said that it, his lives move between these very, very different phases. So he had a spell, a spectacular short-lived spell as a confidence trickster. He was an incredibly prolific, confessing ex-crook and crime writer. And then he was a royal biographer. And I suppose through each of those stages, constantly found myself moving into, moving into historical terrain that I wasn't really familiar with or comfortable with. And a lot of the process of making sense of, of Lucas was about coming in sideways, coming in through the social world, the cultural world, the professional world that he was inhabiting. So finding a trace of him in a news agency, a literary agency in the late 1920s, and then sort of scurrying outwards and trying to make sense of histories of literary agency, histories of news agency in that period. Yeah, I mean, I, the, the book does that wonderfully well, actually, that kind of um, task of situating him. Um, and I think that's one of the things that we're going to get into over the course of, of discussing the book, actually, is the kind of, um, not just the context of the 20s, but also the context of um, the particular worlds he moves in as both criminal, journalist, biographer. Um, but before that, I think we should probably talk a little bit about him um, as as much as we can do, given his multiple aliases and his kind of several several diff- different selves. So, so who was Natalie Lucas? You know, what what can we sort of what can we say to introduce him before turning to um, to his story, which is very much the story of, of the 1920s and 30s? Who was Nettie Lucas? Yeah, someone should write a book about that. <laughs> they should. They it's should. Like, uh, it, took me, it took me 10 years to write this book, and I'm still not sure I figured that question out. I mean, what different stories can you tell? He's, he's, he's a flamboyant larger-than-life trickster who lives fast and dies young, who is, 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 dies in 1940, a washed-up alcoholic in a fire that he starts. He's born into, perhaps born into, a kind of privileged family in 1903. Um, his grandparents, his grandfather is a stockbroker, but he's also born into a, a, a a family that's profoundly dislocated. His father is a really kind of hedonistic, uh, alcoholic actor. Um, his mother dies in childbirth, 
And so by 1907, when, as the story goes, Natalie's father is murdered in, in Paris, he's effectively orphaned. And so there's a story that he tells himself about, about how he makes good from these, these tragic beginnings. But he tells the, the opposite story as well, that, that he was born into, a, born into a life of privilege and his story, as he presents it, is, is of opportunity squandered rather than a life remade. That's interesting because that's, I mean, that, that sort of scratches the surface of him, doesn't it? Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm just thinking like, you know, you joked about someone should write a book, but the book is so kind of, kind of wonderful on, you know, even that tale that you've told there, the book makes clear that that might be true, but it might not as well. It's, it's really kind of, kind of interesting. Um, and particularly the moments, um, where the kind of the stories he's told, um, collide with, with some sense of, um, official records or, you know, the official version of reality. And before yeah. we, before we turn to that though, I think we, we, we should have a think if Lucas is kind of one side of the book, I suppose the period is, is the other. Um, and one of the comments you make quite early on in the book is the sense that the 1920s deserved a character like Lucas. And you've gestured towards the kind of, uh, social changes going on at the time. But I wonder if you could sketch out the sort of, um, what do you call them, the, 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 the deep-rooted anxieties and the social context that allow the trickster to flourish. Yeah, of course, of course. It's tempting, it's tempting with a flamboyant trickster, someone as large, who's larger than life in the way that Lucas is, to see, them as, to see them as somehow extraordinary. And because they're extraordinary, they're exceptional and they're, they're unrepresentative. But I think one of the things that I wanted to do in the book was to place this confidence trickster, this man who shifts identities very, very firmly in the everyday social worlds, the cultural worlds that he inhabited. So this is a period in which it's widely understood that the effects of the Great War have been to destabilize the boundaries between social classes, between genders, between races and ethnicities. And there's all kinds of anxieties about the implications that has for social order. That kind of then sits alongside, I think, the growing traces of a consumer culture that we, I suppose, are familiar with today, a consumer culture defined by advertising, by fashion, by cinema, that, that, sells, that sells the kind of the prospect of, of personal reinvention. You, know, you use this makeup and you can be as glorious as Fader Barra, for example. And I think what you then get is an everyday social world, an everyday culture that places increasing emphasis on front and facade as defining who you are. And in that world, the confidence trickster isn't an exceptional figure. They're an exemplary figure because everyone's acting. The only difference is that, that people like Netley Lucas are doing it more spectacularly, more overtly, uh, perhaps more flamboyantly than, than everyone else. So there's this kind of concern in the 1920s and 1930s that it's increasingly difficult to, to, to know an individual's place in society. And that becomes a threat to ideas about social order, ideas about cultural taste, ideas about political life. At the same time, one of the things that you bring up um, through the story of, of, I guess, kind of, you know, Netley being caught and exposed as a confidence trickster is the sense that... Um, this was also a period where people were, you know, kind of almost sort of 
more aware of the possibility of, of the confidence trickster precisely because of that kind of broader um, social anxiety. And by the end of the 20s, the kind of, maybe it's not a moral panic per se, but, you know, that kind of concern has, has gone. Um, so I wonder if you could talk me through the kind of the, the moment where Natalie stops being confidence trickster in um, the traditional sense when he gets caught and how this um, points us towards a, a sort of decline in the, uh, in the fear and panic over confidence tricks by the yeah. One of the interesting things that happens, we can all, all, all identify confidence tricks for some of the times and other places. It's a kind of perennial deception, a perennial form of acting. But there's this kind of perception in the 1920s that, that there's something unique about the confidence trick, or that the confidence trick is uniquely prominent. Uh, Detective Inspector Percy Smith refers to this as the confidence trick as palmy days. And there's a number of different things that seem to be going on here. One is that this disrupted world after the Great War creates more opportunities for particular kinds of deception. So Netley Lucas masquerading as a gentleman crook by, wear, by, by acquiring ready-to-wear, a ready-to-wear smart suit in London's West End. But there's also a fixation with an anxiety about the confidence trickster on the part of the popular press, but also in particular metropolitan police. So this plays out in the formation of what, what Percy Smith describes as a confidence squad, a particular branch of the metropolitan police. It's all about catching the confidence trickster. But because you've got police officers deliberately looking, deliberately targeting the confidence trick, that means that they apprehend more tricksters. That means that more of these cases are reported in newspapers like the News of the World or the Empire News, and that gives the trick that kind of prominence. So when Netley Lucas is arrested for his most flamboyant fraud, when he poses as Lord Lucas and rips off uh, colonial outfitters in central London in 1920, the case is all over the newspapers. It's reported across the broadsheets in the popular press, and it's both this excited, breathless story about an audacious crook, but also it carries with it in papers like Sunday People, it carries with it a degree of reassurance that no matter how successfully someone masquerades for a short period of time, eventually they will be put in their place. That is there to the same extent in by the end by the end of the 1930s, and I think a number of things have happened. One is that that, that sense of disruption that, that characterises the aftermath of the Great War has stabilised. So the aftermath of the Great War is a period of industrial dispute, race riots, profound anxieties about class relations and the future of British social, cultural, political life. Those tensions have settled down, have calmed down by the late 1920s, early 1930s. And alongside that, there's a growing confidence on the part of the Metropolitan Police that they've finally got this problem in check. So the confidence squad, the register of confidence tricksters, these things are actually working and they're, they're, they're more confident people like Percy Smith and more confident that they're managing people like Natalie Lucas. His career then sort of takes advantage of that um, heightened media interest and he he switches to be um, to have a kind of journalistic and literary career, as you, as you mentioned, as a sort of um, insider in the underworld, telling stories of uh, of crime. Some of this is framed through a kind of redemption narrative. Um, you know, 
he's served his time and now precisely as, as you mentioned you know he's back within the social order that has um, settled down but also it tells us about you know a kind of um, profound transformation in um, British media culture so I wonder if you could say a little bit about his literary and journalistic career um, and obviously kind of you know contextualize that with with changes in journalism and, and publishing yeah of course around about 1923-24 Nettie Lucas is both remade by the popular press and also remakes his life through it so he's already got a degree of prominence because newspapers have reported his high profile arrests in 1920 in 1923 in 1924 and what he begins to do around about 1923 is is on the growing interest in crime and in particular first-hand stories about the criminal underworld amongst newspapers like the news of the world um or john bull or the sunday people so like many other criminals in this period he he sells what is ostensibly his true life story we might kind of think quite carefully about whether there is any truth in the stories that he sells. He sells his story to the highest bidder. So he begins selling his confessions of his life in the underworld of London, of New York and Chicago to a series of Sunday newspapers. That's not necessarily anything unusual in the mid-1920s. As, as the newspaper circulation was hot up, crime becomes a kind of key battlefield in competition for circulation, the competition for readership. So newspapers like Reynolds or the News of the World are always on the hunt for big, exclusive, breaking crime stories. Lucas tells his story in the same way as adventurers like Josephine Adair or a whole range of, of criminals sell their stories. What becomes I think what's different about Lucas is, is that he has the energy, that he has maybe the education, the, the social and cultural capital to go one step beyond this. So he moves from being, from confessing in newspapers, first of all, to publishing these confessions in book form. So taking advantage of the connections that he forges with popular publishers. But the next step after that, something that happens about around about 1925, 1926, 1927, is that he starts writing about crime in a different register. So rather than being simply confessing ex-corrupt himself, someone who's calling on his personal experience of the underworlds of Paris or London to write about crime, he reinvents himself as a crime reporter. So he's still claiming his specialist knowledge, and we can see this move as part of the professionalisation of journalism in the mid-1920s. But his professional knowledge is that of an objective, skilled, meticulous reporter. So he works for the Sunday News, 1926, 1927, writing not about his own crimes, but those of others, about the practice of criminal investigation, about the use of fingerprinting to identify criminals. And then eventually this culminates when, no longer content to talk about himself as a crime reporter, he redefines himself as a criminologist, uh, publishes with publishers in the popular press under the byline of uh, under the byline of the criminologist, and eventually sets up a short-lived but interesting journal called the Criminologist in 1927. So you can see the phases that he goes through, which increasingly make him, which increasingly remove him from the everyday 
criminal confessions that characterize the popular press. Each of these steps tells us something about the nature of the mass media in 1920s Britain. But he's eventually discredited. Um, and and how, how does this happen? Well, the interesting thing about Lucas is that he can clearly, he's a prolific writer. So he publishes five or six books under his own name about crime and any number of newspaper and magazine articles in, in things like the Railway Review, right through to, to Granta, the, the Cambridge University Literary Journal. So he can clearly write and he's clearly incredibly industrious. But the striking thing, one story that you could tell about him, he's never quite content. That whatever success he has is never quite enough. And in 1927, in 1928, he's basically found out for faking exclusive murders, exclusive stories on some very, very high-profile murder cases in his reports for the Sunday News. And he's exposed, first of all, he's exposed implicitly by journalists from the Sunday People, although he's not named in those reports. And But then eventually there's, there's a really high-profile report in the weekly newspaper, John Bull, which exposes him for, for making up a story about the successful re- successful resolution about, of, a, of an old murder case. And it, it ruins him, in effect, because he's increasingly come to base his personal reputation, his claim to credibility on knowledge, authority, objectivity, and truth. But all of a sudden, that's revealed as a shoddy fake um, and he's completely discredited. So the career that he's built up in Fleet Street as a criminologist and a crime writer, crime writer shatters. What he does is interesting. He moves to, London, moves to New York at that point in the winter of 1927, 1928, and is involved in this incredibly spectacular, uh, I suppose, international flurry of publicity where he fakes an engagement to Chicago May Churchill, who's one of the most famous, most notorious, perhaps, I suppose you'd think about her as a, a gangster's mole in Prohibition-era America. And work, they, uh, Chicago May and Lucas, they share a publisher. They work with Doubleday and Duran in New York. And they basically fake their engagement in order to sell their respective books. And this is reported all over the world. Because it's it's a good story, but also because it's an unlikely romance. I mean, May is then in her sixties, Lucas in his, is in his mid twenties. But what that does again is discrediting, because journalists from the New York Times start looking very very carefully about the, the crime writings of this audacious young English criminologist. And what they increasingly show is that, or what they increasingly argue is that that confessions that he's claimed are about his own experiences of crime are actually fake. And so at this moment of maybe his greatest international celebrity, Lucas is discredited again and forced to, forced to do a runner from New York, head back to London in January 1928, and then eventually take yet another new name and start a new phase of his career. Yeah, this is where uh, Mr. Graham enters the story um, as, a, as a biographer of uh, essentially kind of royalty and, and, the, and the social elites, which had, I suppose, a different um, set of, of concerns associated with it, but similar kinds of, uh, of boundary policing that essentially um, leads to, a, to another kind of 
discrediting and um, and another kind of of exposure and scandal. So, what was the sort of uh, yeah the the bogus biography factory uh, he was he was involved with, um, particularly in terms of the the commodification um, of the social elites that he claimed to know. One of the things that seems to characterise Lucas is that he's really attuned to he's really attuned to I suppose what we might think of as market demand and publishing and the press. So when he moves back to London in 1928, he picks up on the growing demand for royal biographies, not just necessarily the conventional royal biography that is interested in public life, ceremony, pomp and circumstance, but a new kind of royal biography that's interested in the realms of the private, domestic life, emotions, family, and so on and so forth. And so he becomes a prolific royal biographer and publisher, moving between different names. Usually he's known as a King Graham, a biographer, but he also works as the publisher, Albert E. Marriott, and sometimes um, under the name Richard Dent, Charlotte Cavendish, all of these different names. And it's hard to tell him exactly what he does, but as far as I know, as far as I can tell, he publishes something like something between 15 or 20 biographies of British and European royalty under his own name, and then any number of other royal biographies as the publisher, Albert E. Marriott. And the way he goes about doing this is really, really interesting. The royal biography sells, intimate stories of royal lives and royal families sell in this period. Graham, although he could just make a lot of this stuff up, goes to extraordinary lengths to secure secure the approval of the royal household. The courtiers associated with King George V, Queen Mary, uh, um, the Prince of Wales later to come out of the eighth. So you can track how he goes about writing these books, and you can track how he tries to secure the status of an authorised biography for his work through the archives that are collected, that he's produced in the Royal Archives in Windsor Castle. And you can track here the correspondence that he has with courtiers, where he approaches them asking if they'll read his work or if they'll approve or authorise his life at the Prince of Wales. You can then see the way they respond to this, sometimes working very, very closely with him to correct his errors, at other times basically telling him where to go, and particularly the courtiers associated with King George V are very reluctant to get involved with this this upstart parvenu biographer who they've never heard of and who can't call upon the connections of class and club and military service that most other royal biographers can evoke in this period. And what happens between 1928 and 1931 is that the relationship between Evelyn Graham or Albert Marriott and the royal household deteriorates. The royal household are increasingly aware that that this is something different. And they become more and more exercised by publication of biographies in print and in newspapers that are that are explicitly or clearly fake, are both unwanted and are somehow duplicitous. So there's a war diary of the Prince of Wales, um, what's presented as a life of King George V by a gentleman of England. And in both of these cases, Evelyn Graham, the royal biographer, becomes the subject of literary scandal, front-page news, when, as far as I can tell, what seems to happen is that that courtiers leak 
the idea, leak the news that this is an unwel- these are unwelcome biographies to journalists working for particular newspapers, the Star or the Morning Star or the Express, for example, Morning Post or the Express, for example. So there are a series of, of scandals around the Bogus Bogus Factory that culminates in 1930-1931 when finally the Daily Mail gets interested in Evelyn Graham and exposes him as, as a shoddy fake, but not just a shoddy fake, but as the former confidence trickster of Nettie Lucas. And there's this great moment where, where Lucas realises that Daily Mail is onto him and goes on the run. It goes on the run down through, down through continental Europe, through the Suez Canal, and then eventually ends up in Durban over the Christmas of 1930, tracked every single step of the way by the Daily Mail. Um, eventually, this, this, this scandal dries out, and Graham Lucas returns to London in 1931, but he's been discredited again, his companies have gone bankrupt, and he's run out of money. So the, the final, his final flurry is when he tries to sell a biography of Queen Alexandra that's ostensibly written by, by one of her ladies-in-waiting. Journalists really, really quickly pick up on this. It's exposed as a fake. He's forged a letter that's ostensibly written by Lord Stanford, V's private secretary, and then is arrested for attempting to obtain money by false pretenses. The case comes to court in July 1931, September 1931, and it's, it's this moment of the public humiliation, the public exposure of probably one of the, the most famous royal biographer of the early 1930s. The most famous royal biographer of the early 1930s is revealed to be a confidence trickster who's conning the British reading public. And this is bound up with, uh, as, as you talk about in the book, you know, the kind of reassertions of class boundaries, the, you know, that sense you mentioned earlier of the kind of the return to order um, at the end of a very, you know, kind of uncertain and, and fluid time in, um, in British, uh, in British um, society. And you get the sense from the press coverage that you talk about that there is a kind of a sense of, both, you know, we have to stop this terrible middle-brow interest in, in elites, whilst at the same time we have to kind of reassert the social order. Yeah, he's an upstart. Yeah. He's, I, not, he, he's not, from the, the, the class, not from the class of people that should be writing royal biographies. Yeah. But this is also a politics list as well, Dave, but, but this is a moment, the moment of his discrediting is about the royal household taking back control of the representation of the British monarchy. So... They are deeply invested in creating a positive image for King George V, Queen Mary, the Prince of Wales. And they do that by working very, very closely with key biographers. But Evelyn Graham, Albert Marriott, they're not playing the game. They're kind of doing something that the royal household doesn't like. And so one of the things that's happening behind the scenes in 1939-31 is that courtiers are pulling the strings and are mobilising publishers, editors, literary agents to shut down the Bogus Biography Factory. So there's kind of an interesting thing going on here, which is about, it's about politics, it's about power, it's about elites sort of securing securing authority over the representation of the monarchy. So our hero, if I can call him that, <laughs> comes out of prison and 
there's both i mean there's there's two things in in the in the kind of later sections of the book one there's the sense of he never really makes it again there's you know attempts to kind of get back involved with particular social elites who are very like quickly onto him and you know kind of close down things you know this correspondence you draw on about no no we know who this character is we don't want him um, involved in things there's also an attempt to to involve churchill in some writing it's you know it's kind of um fascinating from the point of view of seeing someone on the edge of 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 high society at the time but then at the same time there's there's a challenge as a historian to kind of um tell the later life story of someone who um because they're not able to pull their confidence tricks off in whatever setting present you with a challenge of where are the records, you know, how do we know about him? You, you write really um, kind of interestingly about, about his funeral and the kind of the sense of, you know, who was there? Did they turn up? What, what would, would it have been like to come to a funeral for someone who had, you know, so many aliases and this sort of thing. So I wonder if you could say a little bit about that sense of not just his life after prison, but also the challenge um, as a historian trying to, to piece that together. Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the period between when he comes out of prison in, in 1933 and then when he dies in July 1940, in a way, that's when he's always elusive. He's always kind of a flicker in the archive, a flicker in a newspaper report, a name on a piece of headed notepaper that, that might be the person that you're looking for. And that's true. That's true throughout his life. It becomes particularly acute in the 1930s because there is this, there's this overriding kind of sense of melancholy that this is a life that's sort of that's limping to an end, that's fizzling out in many ways. So you see him in flashes, um, a mention in a divorce file, uh, a, a kind of a brief comment in a scribbled annotation by a courtier. And I think, you know, the usual response of a historian or a biographer to challenges like this is is to try and read through the gaps, to try to treat the gaps, to treat the silences as a kind of problem to overcome. And, you know, that, that, that's great. And there's a lot of good work that, that does that kind of, that kind of thing, that, that treats an individual life as a puzzle to solve. But I didn't, I didn't really want to do something like that because it seemed to me that it didn't reflect the nature of, Netley Lucas's lives and lives, but also that, that it didn't do justice, that it wasn't really a kind of, it wasn't a satisfying way of writing history. And I think one of the things that I really, the, the book is about him, the book is about working on a confidence trip he's constantly changing shape, but it's also an extended reflection or a mediation on how we might write history differently. And I think what I wanted to do was to, was to leave the stories that I could tell about Lucas or Graham or Marriott open-ended to show, to be content to show what might have been, to be content to show other possibilities, other ways of reading the fragments, to kind of produce a sort of history, I guess that was more, more uncertain, that, that accepted the gaps in our knowledge on their own terms, but didn't try to fill them but worked with the gaps, worked with the silences as a way of, I suppose, as a way of reflecting on what history is, how we might do it differently. 
in in that kind of light, I mean, you, you said you know the, the book is about is about him, but it's also about history itself. I mean, how how do you sort of feel about him? <laughs> Which sounds like a strange question, but um, you know, as a professional project, it's take, you know you, you've sunk a lot of a lot of work into it. There's a lot of you know kind of theoretical or historiographical reflection. But it's about this guy, you know. It, it's a story of, the, of this this confidence trickster. So I'm kind of interested to, yeah, to hear sort of like how you actually feel about him. He's quite, I mean, you know, I, the book opens with 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 me writing a love letter to him to try and explain, to try and explain, to try and make sense of, of exactly why I became obsessed with him and obsessed with him to the point that I chased him across archives and libraries for ten years. And then the book kind of closes with. I suppose what you'd call a breakup letter when <laughs> it's this moment when I've just become, when I just was absolutely kind of fed up with his tricks, his deceptions, his lies. And how I feel about him is somewhere in between those things. He's beguiling, uh, charming, audacious. He draws you in to keep wanting to know more. And I think all of that, the nature of his deceptions, his constant movement between different lives and different stories has been incredibly productive for me because because it's been on that basis that I've tried to find a way of writing about the past that echoes those uncertainties. But also, you know, he's not a nice man. Uh, he's he's a crook. He's duplicitous. He betrays all of the people who become close closest to him. He has two wives, countless affairs. He is in a long-term relationship with his pal and with his, his his pal and partner Guy Hart or Albert Marriott. He later is a violent, misogynistic, washed-up alcoholic. Uh, he's not a nice guy, and so there's something in a way becoming beguiled by someone like this. Writing a book about someone like this—that's quite an uncomfortable experience for me to become obsessed with him because because you know he's not pleasant in lots of ways. But he's also he's been incredibly productive for the, productive of the ways that I have started to think about both Britain in the twenties and thirties, about nature history, about my own practice as a historian. So, where are you kind of taking this next? Obviously, you know, the story of this Prince's Tricksters is to an extent um, closed by the book, but obviously, the kind of themes you brought up. I guess extend into uh, into your current work as well. Yeah, right now I'm trying to I'm trying to resist the temptation to write another book about an extra, about an extraordinary individual. I find <laughs> you know this is it's a way of working that I've become increasingly increasingly comfortable with that is increasingly familiar with me. Like you 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 find someone intriguing in a newspaper report. Um, and then you sort of begin to, to, to tease out, you begin to pursue the different threads of their life. Um, I don't want to be a one-trick historian, though, so I'm trying to resist that at the moment. But I'm sure I'll end up doing something similar. Um, I suppose right now I've, I've taken a bit of a step back, and I'm trying to finish this, this, this book, trying to finish a book about, about the, the, that reflects on the nature of British culture in the 1920s in the round, that, that takes a lot of the pieces a lot of the themes that have been present or implicit in my work on Lucas and just looks looks at them in a wider possible sense. So I'm interested in I'm interested in 
what happened to cultural life in the 1920s in the aftermath of war, but also in particular in how the 19 in, in the significance of the 1920s for the making of the making of modern British culture. Because I think it's increasingly seems to me that this is a formative moment in the making of modern Britain, but it's it's one that we've lost sight of. We've lost sight of it because it's bracketed by the Great War and the Second World War, these supposedly more important events that come before and after. We've lost sight of it because the British experience of the 1920s seems less dramatic, less spectacular than that of continental Europe or the United States. We've lost sight of the significance of the 1920s, the radicalness of the 1920s, under these comforting notions of the long weekend or the jazz age or the roaring 20s. And, you know, they're really evocative terms, and they're terms that carry our interest in the decade after the Great War. But they don't do justice to to the freighted nature of this moment in British cultural life. It's a moment when, in effect, a lot of, of modern British culture is up for grabs in the process of becoming. And so I want to write a book that, that, that takes all of those themes, brings them together, and suggests, now suggests something different about how we might think about the place of the 1920s in modern British history. Thanks for listening to New Books and Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien. On this episode, I was talking to Professor Matthew Holbrook from the University of Birmingham about his new book, Prince of Tristis, which was published by the University of Chicago Press.